This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Modern epic blockbuster films are known for their bombastic music scores that are often just as important as other aspects of filmmaking. One of the most important film score composers, Max Steiner, is arguably the greatest Golden Age film musician. Starting with King Kong, Steiner developed a method for film scores that is still used today. In this interview, I speak with documentarian Stephen C. Smith about his new book, Music by Max Steiner, The Epic Life of Hollywood's Most Influential Composer. The book was published in 2020 by Oxford University Press. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Stephen C. Smith. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Joel. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you. We are talking about your book, Music by Max Steiner, The Epic Life of Hollywood's Most Influential Composer, which just came out from Oxford University Press and is actually part of their Oxford Cultural Biography series, of which there's only a couple other books, so obviously they've got you in there pretty early on in their process, so it's great that uh, that they uh, involved you in that book. Uh, I must admit that I heard your interview on uh, one of my favorite podcasts, although it's actually a radio show, Celluloid, Celluloid Dreams, with my friend Tim Sika. He and I went, or actually known each other since high school, although we have not seen each other for many, many, many years. But uh, that's how I think I first spotted your name, although I had seen it on one of my other lists of possible authors to interview. So Tim and I go way back, and I really enjoyed that interview, so I hope we can uh, continue on, or also wanted to give him a little bit of shout-out, because as I say, I know um, yeah, he and I have keep in contact with uh, various social medias, but I, I know it was a great interview, so I'm, I'm glad, glad I was able to talk to you. That's great. He's a wonderful interviewer, and uh, as I learned from my Steiner book and from life, it is amazing how the people we sometimes meet early in our life come back in in interesting and good ways. So you're actually known more for your, or at least I assume this is from most of your work has been in producing and directing of of documentaries and short features. Uh, I was looking through the list of some of the various things you've done, and it's pretty clear you're one of those folks who is, you know, we see the DVDs and we see online, and there are these <laughs> short, short biography or short detailed making ofs and, and other kinds of work. So I've seen that you did a lot of, you've done a lot of those kind of jobs <clears throat> where you've created documentaries, mostly shorts, for some films and also some television series and then also some topics on your own. And yet you actually began your career as a writer. Um, the first book you wrote, which is, this is now your second book as far, and they're both on film composers. Yep. Your first book was called A Heart of at Fire Center, The Life and Music of Bernard Herrmann. And that was in 1991, and it actually won awards. And um, it was, a bi- as, as it was indicated in the material I read, it was the first biography of that composer. And here you are again, deciding we need to do a, we need to have a biography of, of, one of the, if not the greatest film composers of all time, Max Steiner. So I'm glad that you uh, found the time to do this. Uh, what what led you into Hollywood? Obviously, you wrote the book, but then since then, your career has more been as a, uh, a producer, director, and writer 
uh, for films. So give us a little bit of background as to where where you went from first writing and then going into uh, film. Well, yes, and uh, I think my, my life is proof that geography and genealogy are destiny because I grew up in Southern California with the film industry around me, and my older brothers, who's 17 years older than I am and was more like a fun uncle than a, a brother, really, I would only see him every once in a while, but he was a working actor in, in Los Angeles at the time. He's been on to be a very successful stage producer, um, but he was working in television and theater out here, and uh, he he really nurtured my love of classic film and introduced me to so many great films and great film soundtracks. And one of his friends became sort of my uncle Bob, and that would be Robert Osborne. So uh, I, I got to know Bob Osborne from the age of nine. And, and I think Bob was uh, really just, he and my brother were huge influences. And looking back, I think how remarkable it was that, that Robert Osborne invited me when I was about 10 years old to some of his Hollywood parties where there would be these, these figures of the golden age. And in those pre-VHS days, he had a projector set up and films would be shown. And I felt very comfortable in that world. And, and I think that Bob really showed me the template of how you could uh, have a career documenting film. He had started as an actor and then realized he was, uh, his destiny was, was more in, in the uh, chronicling the history of film. So, so he and my brother were wonderfully supportive. And when I was a student at USC uh, in 1983, I was lamenting the fact that there was no book on one of my favorite composers, Bernard Herrmann. And my, and my brother said very matter-of-factly, well, why don't you write one? And when you're 19, thankfully, you don't know what you can't do, what you can and can't do. So I reached out to uh, the wonderful composer, David Raxon, who scored Laura, and uh, some other people who uh, actually taught at uh, my college that I was attending who knew Bernard Herrmann. And I was just graced with the good luck that they were very supportive of the project. And it, it lasted for about seven and a half years, was published in 1991. And in those days of the 1980s, so many people were still alive that I was able to interview many of Herman's uh, close friends and, and professional colleagues. And I, I thought, well, this is fun. I'll be an author. I'll, I'll write for newspapers. I was freelancing for the Los Angeles Times when I got out of school. And then, of course, the world sort of changed and, and the world of print has become more and more challenging to make a living in. So I, I switched over to uh, television and I was a producer of the A&E biography series for a number of years and a series on AMC called Backstory that looked at the making of classic films. So I, I was fortunate to make a, a, about 200 documentaries for primetime television, mostly on films and filmmaking. And then when the, uh, the world of reality television replaced the documentary television world, I switched over to, to uh, making similar features and featurettes, as you mentioned, for DVD and Blu-ray. And it was actually doing something very similar, but it could either be a 90-minute documentary on the history of the South Pacific or the Sound of Music, or it could be a six-minute piece. But uh, I certainly enjoyed that. And then bringing it all full circle, one of the people that I love to interview for those documentaries is a brilliant writer named Gary Giddens that some of your writers will know. He is an expert on both film and music. He is the biographer of Bing Crosby, wrote a wonderful book on Louis Armstrong and is very much featured in Ken Burns' jazz series. And Gary and I became friends. And one day he told me in 2015 that he was overseeing this new series of biographies for Oxford. And uh, what I like to take part. And as soon as he mentioned the people they were uh, considering and got to the name Max Steiner, I said, stop. That's, <laughs> I would love to do this. And so I found myself in really a charmed situation where one of my, my favorite living authors, Gary Giddens, was overseeing a project that took me to Vienna and London and uh, the archives of New York for Max's Broadway days. And of course, uh, many, many weeks and months of going through production papers from RKO and Warner Brothers and other, other places here in Los Angeles to write Max's stories. So it, 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 uh, I feel like I've sort of come full circle writing the Steiner book to the 19-year-old the kid who started the Bernard Herrmann book. So obviously, given your background, and it's great that you had such a great history with Robert Osborne, because that would definitely help you as far as understanding the importance of the background of uh, Hollywood or, or movie history. And therefore, I think that it, you can see how it would affect everything you did from that point on. Um, 
obviously you understood that with that kind of a background, you understood the importance of Max Steiner. Um, but when did, when, how much of prior to, uh, your work was film music so important to you? Obviously the two books you've now written on film have both been musicians or composers. What aspects of film music reached out to you? What part of your background made you decide that this were, these were topics that were particularly of interest to you? Well, I, I, I think that both Bernard Herrmann and Max Steiner were not only extraordinarily gifted musical dramatists among, among the greatest, uh, and I, I take film out of that, but great musical dramatists, uh, but they also worked on many of my favorite films, and they worked on very important films. Uh, Bernard Herrmann's first movie was literally was with Citizen Kane, <laughs> and then he worked with Hitchcock for many years, of course, on Vertigo, Psycho, etc. And then his last film was Taxi Driver, which he completed the night that he passed away in 1975. So Herrmann had that wonderful combination of great films and, and uh, a very distinctive musical voice and a very larger-than-life personality. And I, I loved many of Max Steiner's films, uh, especially King Kong, which just captured me as an eight or nine year old kid. And I can still be that eight or nine year old kid, I think, watching it. Um, but so many other wonderful films like Casablanca and The Searchers. And he was the musical director of the Astaire Rogers series because he was the musical director of RKO for many years. And he did noirish titles like Mildred Pierce, The Big Sleep. He scored Treasure of the Sierra Madre. So these were all movies I knew and loved. And again, I, I recognized a very distinctive and individual musical voice. Uh, I, I knew something of, her, of, of Max Steiner's life because I, I'd read the chapters devoted to him in various books and articles. But I didn't really know his full story because, and again, I was lucky as with Herman, the full story had not been told. Somehow... Max had been been skipped over in spite of being arguably the single most important figure in the history of film music. And so I was very, very fortunate to uh, uh, to to be able to tell that story. And even though Steiner died in 1971, so we're approaching a 50th anniversary of his passing and he was born in 1888, his papers his music scores, and even the recording sessions going back to about 1931-32, all of that was saved by a, a marvelous archivist named James Dark. Uh, and I co-dedicated the book to, to him because Jim, who's a friend, really was the one who made sure that Max's papers and music uh, was saved. And you'll find it all at Brigham Young University. Max didn't have any affiliation with that college, but that's where uh, Jim was an archivist uh, for many decades. So I actually had more primary sources to work with on the Steiner book, even though he lived at a slightly earlier time than than Bernard Herrmann, than I did on the Herrmann book. And I had a lot for, for Herrmann. I, but with Max, all of his papers survived. And also uh, the archivist Jim Dark saved the papers of Max's third of four wives. And his third wife was the principal harpist on his scores for about a decade. So she was a, of an important musical collaborator. She was the mother of his only child, which meant that there was going to be a, a lifelong connection between them. And her papers were, were more voluminous than even Max's and his were substantial. So I had so much material to work with. And, uh, and the production reports on the RKO films, and Max was at RKO from very end of 1929 to early 1936, uh, UCLA has the production reports. So you can sort of go through day by day the making of all these films. And you can look at the uh, the notes on the scoring session and see that among the background singers listed is uh, Bing Crosby in 1930-31 before he's really known. And uh, so I, it, it was great fun to go through this material. And it's amazing that Steiner didn't come to Hollywood until he was 41 years old and yet went on to essentially pioneer the grammar of film music as we know it. But he, he touched 30, 300 movies or so. When I say yeah, he touched them, I mean that he scored many of them with full scores, but he was also the musical supervisor who would add cues here and there or oversee what was being done. So he did a phenomenal amount of work in Hollywood between really 1930 and early 1965, about 35 years. So, so he was prolific and his, his life before Hollywood was this amazing uh, kind of Warner Brothers biopic uh, of, of adventures starting in 
Vienna of the 1880s. He was the third generation of this theatrical dynasty in Vienna. His grandfather was the person who had convinced Johann Strauss Jr., the waltz king, to write for the stage. And that's why we have operettas like Deflator Mouse. And so Maximilian Steiner, Max's grandfather, was a revered figure in Vienna. Max's own father, Gabor, uh, was a theatrical entrepreneur who would put on symphony concerts and sort of Cecil B. DeMille-like stage spectacles. And then he ran a vaudeville house uh, that was very, very mainstream to the public. Uh, and then most interestingly, Max's father, Gabor, built this massive amusement park in Vienna in Prater Park called Venice in Vienna. That was sort of this miniature recreation of Venice, Italy. And it had you know, gondolas and, and canals and palazzos housing gift shops and concert halls and what seems to be the first movie theater in Vienna just months after the Lumiere brothers had shown films Gabor imported this new device and uh, it was just this incredible playground that mixed if you will high and low culture I don't really like those terms but I mean the sort of symphonic world with people who like to ride roller coasters and oh and it was Gabor who put in the the Ferris wheel that we see in movies like The Third Man and so many others the reason rod that they call it in Vienna that was Gabor's uh, uh you know, we have Gabor to thank for its existence so it sort of explained why Max Steiner became such a perfect person to essentially formulate the the, the rules of of film scoring and become a great film composer because he grew up in a family that celebrated symphonic music and also uh very, very popular things like amusement parks and vaudeville. So he inhaled all of it as a child and he loved it. And having such a powerful father meant that he could publish his first song at the age of nine. He could have his first operetta produced when he was in his late teens. And uh, that alone is a really remarkable story. And in your discussion of his background, what I found interesting is Yes, he had he had talent and he had all these connections and he did all this work, and yet he was five seconds away from failure a lot of times, especially financially. Throughout, especially the early part of his life, he got onto doing musical theater and and, and other kinds of work, and yet he was constantly right on the edge of falling off the cliff, so to speak. I love the phrase, five seconds away from failure. That's absolutely perfect. And again, a, a gift to a biographer is the fact that his life was such incredible peaks of triumph and valleys of, of either failure or, or near the end of, of tragedy. But uh, but it, it was an exciting life. And, and you're absolutely right. Max was really poised as a young man to be a successful composer of Viennese operetta in, in the 1900s when his family went bankrupt. Gabor, like so many, you know, visionary entrepreneurs, just you know, uh, spent too much money, and the, the the metaphorical roof collapsed on the Steiner family. So Max had to go off to on his own to London and really start over and forge a career for himself. And he was in London for about six years, and has wor had worked his way up to being a, a a busy musical director in London theatre, that is, the conductor or orchestrator of musical shows. And then World War One breaks out, and simply because he's Austrian and uh, Britain was now at war with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Max suddenly found himself uh, an enemy alien. So he had to flee once again, borrowed money from people, and uh, got on a ship to America and uh, started all over again and worked his way up from zero to being a very busy musical director on Broadway, the conductor of shows for... Gershwin, Jerome Kern, Oscar Hammerstein, and really all the, just about all the greats. Uh, and uh, that's why Hollywood came calling in 1929, because Max was so successful as a Broadway orchestrator and conductor that when this new studio RKO needed to have someone help them with music at the dawn of the talkies in 1929, Max accepted an offer to go west and uh, try uh, try his hand in this new field of talking pictures. And it's interesting that he was originally hired just to be an orchestrator, which is a, it's, a, it's a job that basically supports a composer, helping create, uh, turn, turn the rough sketches that a composer might write, and sometimes those are very rough indeed, into full orchestral parts, deciding which instruments play what parts and all of that. And even though he was hired just as an orchestrator, they quickly put him to work writing music, 
And then in 1930, they asked him to be the musical director of the studio, overseeing all of the music. So he had a very fast rise, and uh, he was fortunate that after about two years, a, a young 20-something executive named David O. Selznick was brought in to try to help RKO make better pictures and make more money. RKO was, was if, if Max was five seconds away from failure, RKO was perennially three seconds away from failure, <laughs> barely staying open. And Selznick came along, and he really he unleashed Max's full powers uh, up to that time not only executives at RKO, but really all the studio executives in Hollywood were very, very suspicious of having un, uh, instrumental underscoring orchestral music under a dialogue scene, say in a drama. Music was fine if you were making a musical, but if it was a realistic film, the producers and directors kept saying to Max, well, won't people say, where is the music coming from? And Max couldn't convince them that audiences would accept a musical accompaniment if it was done well and subtly in a film. But then finally, Selznick came along, and he, he agreed completely with Max. He knew how much music would bring to a, a dramatic film or a comedy. And the two of them really changed the business in the year of 1932. Max wrote very important scores. Uh, the first was for a movie we've sort of forgotten now called Symphony of Six Million, but it was a great success, and people loved his music, and, and the press talked about how much it added to have this full underscore and uh, a better-known film that's still seen by some today is The Most Dangerous Game, which he scored also in 1932. And by December, he was working on a movie called King Kong that would really change you know, RKO's fortune, kept it in business, and is still a film that modern-day film composers say is one of the reasons they got into the business. Uh, in the 1990s, Jerry Goldsmith said of, of the Kong score, I'm doing what I'm doing because of it. And Danny Elfman has said uh, something very similar. So yes, Max Max had kind of a mercurial rise, and uh, really showed the industry that you could have underscoring in in all kinds of film. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I know that uh, we obviously had during the silent film era. Most as time went on, early on, you know, when they showed films, and as as silent films got longer, there would be musical accompaniment, but often that was just music that wasn't necessarily uh, um, scored specifically for those particular films. They weren't memorable. I can't think of anybody who has written much about silent film scores, uh, at least recently. So I could see in some ways that it was unusual, the idea of using film scores in in regular movies, not musicals. Um, But yet, if you think about it, you know, musical, you, you have musical background in other ways, in other kinds of formats before there were films. So it, it, I could see though, if you go back and listen and watch a couple of older films, I would the, the two examples I can think of are are Frankenstein and Dracula. They both have they both have they both have um, music for their title sequences at the end, but then there's not a note of music in the rest of the films. And no. to, to me, the silence is well. In some ways, some people feel silence works well in those situations, but it is interesting. Other than that, though, there's not a note of music in the rest of the films. It's true. And, and while Max himself felt that very often in a film it was appropriate and, even, and better to not have music, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Frankenstein and Dracula, the 1931 versions, because those are movies that people still see. And yes, you, you not only there, there's, there's no music after the main titles, as you mentioned, and then there's a lot of crackle and hiss from the film emulsion. And the pacing of both films, particularly Dracula, really, really uh, drags as it goes along because there are sequences that would have been so greatly improved with underscore. And it's something that James Whale, the director of Frankenstein, recognized. And uh, we have him to thank for hiring Franz Waxman to score the sequel to Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein, which has one of the great film scores of all time. But yes, in 1930 and 31, it's simply 
with with very few exceptions, and of course there's always a little bit of an exception, but with very few exceptions, there's there isn't really music in the dialogue scenes. And although people were very used to hearing uh, uh, music all through the silent era, as you mentioned, what Max did that was different was he really carefully wrote around the dialogue. He would he would write a very let's say bespoke specific scores for each film, and he also uh, would come up with different themes for, for different characters or locations or or certain kinds of atmospheres. There's a, there's a very effective danger theme used throughout King Kong. And he doesn't just sort of restate those themes in their basic form the way a lot of silent film accompanists would, but he he, he develops those themes much in the way a, a concert composer would do in developing ideas. And sometimes he tells you what a character is thinking by playing, you know, the... A, 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 theme of someone else while you're seeing someone which tells you that person is thinking about them. He was brilliant in his use of orchestral color, of choosing which instruments to create the right atmosphere for a score. Uh, he uses a lot of very modern dissonance in scores like King Kong that were far ahead of its, far ahead of its time for film music. And uh, in, in other ways, really you know, took things that were sort of floating in the ether, ideas that have been around, and synthesized them into... The, the way films really are still scored today. I mean, a film like Star Wars is very much a Max Steiner kind of score with its different themes for different characters, the way it develops them. And uh, it's interesting that when Star Wars was being assembled, um, I, Paul Hirsch, the editor who won an Oscar for the film, uh, was one of the people who put together a temp track, a temporary music track for the, it's sort of a guide for the composer to be and to help them edit to a certain rhythm. And the original temp track for Star Wars before John Williams was hired did have some Max Steiner on it. And George Lucas once said that they wanted a, a corngold Max Steiner kind of score. So, you know, if people say, is Max Steiner relevant? I say, well, is Star Wars relevant? Is John Williams relevant? I mean, you can draw a very direct line from what Max did to what's still being done today. I think if you also hit that period when Star Wars came out in 77 and, of course, Williams had already done Jaws in 75, so that was, he was becoming very well-known. But if you go and listen and, and watch a lot of the films of the, in that period of time, especially 60s, 70s later, the soundtrack itself seemed to be going, the musical soundtrack was changing. And there were some films where it was practically non-existent and yet, obviously, this is one of the things Lucas did with Star Wars was to emphasize the soundtrack, at the musical soundtrack, as an important part of the whole thing. I mean, I don't think anybody can think twice without knowing what the Star Wars theme is. And, you know, yet uh, at the time, that wasn't really the normal way in that period of time. The soundtracks had sort of gone off, gone down a little bit. So... Um, there's no question that uh, that is one of those things that nowadays it's just a given that every major um, blockbuster type film and even smaller films are going to have a soundtrack that's going to be important to the whole thing. And then often they're going to be big bombastic uh, soundtracks that will have re recognizable themes. And I think you're right. A lot of these composers that are doing the work now uh, learned from Max Steiner. They did, and whether they're conscious of that, uh, they they are all basically you know working within a, a kind of a sandbox that he he really defined. And uh, you're absolutely right. We owe Spielberg and Lucas a tremendous debt of thanks for bringing back that kind of orchestral score that is still used in Marvel films, and certainly is is the is is still the sound of. Uh, films with an element of fantasy or that's larger than life. And, and even a more intimate film like uh, last year's Marriage Story has a lovely orchestral score by Randy Newman, who is, of course, the nephew of another great film composer, Alfred Newman. So uh, it, it continues. And, and a great and film composer in his own right, obviously. Himself. Yes, yes, indeed. And uh, you're, you're absolutely right in that in the 1960s, uh, there was a big sea change and the kind of music that a Bernard Herrmann or Max Steiner was writing went very much out of fashion. And Max wrote his last score. He really completed it at the end of 1964. His last two films were released in January of 65. And Herrmann uh, was kind of unemployable in Hollywood by the mid-60s, right around that same time. Now, in his case, it was because he had had such an 
adversarial, confrontational personality that he had made a lot of enemies in the business. But even if he had been a, 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 as nice as Max was, and Max was really a, a, a loved person, very warm and, and, and gregarious, but even if Benny Herman had been a little nicer <laughs> to people, I think he still would have found it very difficult to be hired simply because the music of the 60s is the Beatles, Hard Day's Night, it's pop, it's rock, it's jazz, it's, it's movies made for a younger audience. And, you know, appropriately so in many cases, a, a different sound. But in, in some cases where a Steiner or Herman score would have been good, the producers just did, wouldn't do it and didn't want to go there because they felt it was it was out of style. And I think one thing that John Williams and, and so many others today have shown that if you do it right, it's timeless. You know, I and the same is certainly true of Steiner. And yes, uh, it, it's a it's a it's Max was a composer of his time. But if you watch King Kong or certainly if you watch Casablanca with an audience, and everyone buys into that that larger than life world, but one that still has very identical, very identifiable human emotions. They are really captivated by the score. And uh, when I was writing the Steiner book over the last five years, I went to as many screenings of Steiner films being shown to the public to see if people would laugh at the music or laugh at the films. And I cannot remember a time where people just didn't get caught up in the movie and accept the the style of it. So. There you go. Well, the other thing that I think Steiner proves that some movie composers can do it and some can't as well, and that's the ability to switch uh, his styles depending on the film itself. There are some composers who will who write great film music, but they can't necessarily change their directions all the time. Uh, they all t- they sometimes will stay the same, but Steiner is, is an example, and I would put John Williams in the same category. Yeah. If you look at a list of John Williams films, it's unbelievable what di- I mean. We know him from Star Wars a lot, but he's also done some very completely different types of films that aren't science fiction, that are dramas and other kinds of films. So that's one of the other things he's got going with Steiner. That if you look a listing of all the different films that Steiner had did. They're all over the the gamut as far as the type of films, and and so that is to me proves an, another example of why he is so well, uh, so why he was so influential. Yes, I I would agree with you, and he was smart enough to know that change was necessary at times. Uh, if you listen to his early scores for movies like King Kong, sometimes he's matching the the motion of the characters or Kong so closely that uh, it became known as Mickey Mousing, the notion that uh, the music was sort of hitting exactly the movement of everything. Max saw that as a continuation of what Wagner did in operas, because in, in operas like The Flying Dutchman, the characters move and Wagner would put in his score that, that people are walking on certain beats and all of that. And admittedly, it is a style that works better in a stylized universe, like a fantasy film or something. The Marvel movies still do it today. But Max did less and less of that Mickey Mousing approach as he went along, and certainly by by the by the era of World War II, he became more lean, more spare in his sound, uh, and uh, he incorporated jazz when it was appropriate. Uh, the movie Caged, that's set in a women's prison, uses jazz about a year before the justly renowned score by Alex North for A Streetcar Named Desire. That's a very jazzy score, but Max was also using jazz. And of course, the the most surprising piece of music he wrote and the most surprising success in, for him was Theme for a Summer Place, when in 1959, at the age of 71, he was asked to score the movie adaptation of a book that was considered, in a word of the time, kind of trashy, kind of this sexy novel about uh, young people in love and their parents also uh, contemplating love affairs and uh, something in the Peyton Place mold. And Max wrote this very popish, light, light pop rock kind of theme for the young people. And it was released commercially. It was recorded by an easy listening conductor named Percy Faith, that some of your listeners may recall. And Theme from the Summer Place became the number one record in America, held the spot for nine weeks sold millions, and then won Record of the Year at the Grammys over songs by Frank Sinatra, Elvis, Ella Fitzgerald, and Ray Charles. So at age 71, a Viennese composer born in 1888 uh, composed what Billboard said was the best-selling 
instrumental of the rock era. <laughs> and uh, we, of course, we that was very early that. on. That was before the Beatles. <laughs> yes, and the early rock era. Early rock era. And uh, Max, in his whole life, he made millions, but he spent more. He was just such a spendthrift, like his father. He was married four times, so there was a lot of alimony. Uh, he he bought the best of everything. He was very generous with friends because so many people he had known in the business didn't make it the way he did. And if they caught him and asked for a handout, uh, he would he would do it unless somebody close to him stopped him. Um, but he was constantly in arrears financially, owed the government a fortune. And it was not really until A Summer Place and the success of that record in 1960, shortly after the movie came out, that he finally started to make you know, really millions and was financially set for, for the, the last dozen years of his life. I want to talk about a little bit about how he worked, um, how he did his work, because obviously in, during, this, during the period that he was working, and you said he's worked on literally hundreds of films, which when you think about it, you say to yourself, how could, you know, statistically or, you know, you could use mathematics and figure out how many years he was uh, in the working and figure out how many films a year he was working on. And yet uh, he was able to do it. Um, and I know he was constantly, though, under the gun, so to speak. You talk about that in, in the prologue to the book, where, which we haven't mentioned, but we should mention that he wrote the score for Gone with the Wind. And uh, yep. at that point... That your your prologue is about how he had heard that the, that uh, uh, um, he was possibly going to be replaced because he wasn't done, and yes. so so let's talk a little bit about this aspect of him. What was his normal way of doing things with films, or does did it matter? Was there different ways that he did things depending on the film, or was it true that he was constantly under the gun? as far as getting his work done? Well, that's a, that's a good question. And he did have a preferred system. It did vary sometimes uh, on a film. For example, if there was a song that they needed for the film and he was writing the melody of it or he was assisting songwriters in some way during production, he might be involved during the production of the movie. But what he preferred to do was wait until a film had been roughly assembled where there was a first cut of it. Uh, he, he didn't like reading the screenplays and trying to start the right... To, to write his scores before the film was shot because he said that when he tried doing that, his vision of the film based on reading the script was so different from the final movie because the actors had changed, you know, the, who was playing the role made that character a very different person or the tone had changed or the movie had, you know, rap had, had massively changed during production. So he said that he always wanted to wait to really be affected by the, the film and the drama itself and how people looked and sounded in it. I think there was an element of just a little bit of also painting himself into something of a corner. Uh, he's not the only artist who I think worked best when there was a lot of pressure on him. And I think that uh, he, he was such a workaholic and there's a, there's a certain manic quality to his, uh, his work life, especially where he might have just a, a few weeks um, sometimes days to write a complete film score that uh, he would work day and night to do it. And um, that was pretty much the system he had. Of course, he preferred to have more time. And, and as you can imagine, usually did a better or did a, a more satisfying job for him if he had more time. But he, he became very well known in the industry as someone who could work fast. I and mean, he wrote a score for a David O. Selznick film called Little Lord Fauntleroy in a week. And Everyone was just astonished that he could do it. And you would think, well, I'm sure he probably had a lot of ghostwriters. There were a lot of other people work, working on the scores. Max really didn't have ghostwriters. He did have people who assisted him in the orchestrations, which is to say he'd write out the chords and write out the full score. Uh, and he would do quick notes within his score of what, what instruments he wants to play. So over a note, he'll write first violins, and under another note, he'll wrote, write English horn, and so forth. So he's really not only um, composing, but he's sort of doing a, a shorthand orchestration uh, as he's writing and, and being himself a great orchestrator. You know, He could certainly have done all of those orchestrations if he'd had two or three months instead of two or three or four weeks sometimes to write a score. 
but he hired people who really understood what he wanted so that he could write in shorthand. And that's one thing I discovered and, and talk about in the book is that he would use certain shorthand notes uh, for his intentions that his, his uh, collaborators understood. And it was only on a film like Gone with the Wind or another Selznick film, uh, Since You Went Away, that was almost three hours long and Max had one month to write the score in it, which is pretty in- insane when you think about it being a big orchestral score. It was only in those instances that he would enlist some of his orchestration partners, who were also composers, to write some of the cues. But they did it under his supervision, with his themes, with him sort of verbally dictating kind of what he wanted it to do and and how to do it. So he was very hands-on. He was not one of those people who sort of just siphoned things off. And uh, Hal Wallace, who was sort of the chief producer at Warner Brothers during most of the years that Max was was there, Hal Wallace said the only time he saw Max get really upset was when he wasn't able to be part of something or when when they tried to suggest they bring more people on to help him, he wanted to do it. So he deliberately created these scenarios of, of difficulty for himself. But I think he he liked being under the gun and certainly he had a, a just a, an incredible gift for melody that was uh, present from the start of his film scoring years to the very end. And I think that's another thing that sets him apart is that unlike Bernard Herrmann, who wrote brilliant, brilliant scores, but is not thought of as a melodic composer like a Henry Mancini, Max could write these gorgeous melodies, like the main theme from Now Voyager that became a popular song and won him an Oscar, to, of course, the Terra theme from Gone with the Wind, to so many others. Uh, his, his, his gift for melody is just extraordinary. Let's come back a little bit because there was a I was going to ask you about this but we were moving forward a little bit so now we can come back I want to talk a little bit more about sure. King Kong and what was so unusual about it it's like I say we we even people who are fans of of older films uh, may not completely understand why what he did for King Kong was so important to the whole concept not only of music but also I think filmmaking in general is that that there's quite a bit to be owed for the work he did for King Kong. What was different about what he did then versus how films were being made in the 30s and and at this period of time? Yes. Well, I I would say that King Kong is probably the greatest game changer when it comes to film music in terms of uh, being the most influential score of all time. Um, it was begun in 1932. And again, this is only about two and a half years after the talkies have become uh, the, the, the sole kind of film that Hollywood is making. It comes after two years that we've discussed, 1930 and 31, when there's very little underscoring in film. And it's in the year when Max and David O. Selznick are really just starting to to introduce the the idea of a full score for a movie and something that Hollywood began to pick up on very quickly. So, so to to um, sort of destroy one myth or one thing that's often said, King Kong is not the first big movie score, but it's the first important film score written for a movie that we remember, and it is the movie that probably inspired more composers to become film composers than any other movie, you know, perhaps now with Star Wars. It was so influential, and uh, the movie was in a bit of trouble before Max was going to score it. It was, it was made, and it, it was the dream of its producer and co-director, Marion C. Cooper. And uh, David O. Selznick supported Cooper, and they spent an enormous amount of money making King Kong at a time when the studio was just trying to stay out of bankruptcy. And uh, indeed, by the time uh, that Kong was released, David O'Sullivan had left the studio and Marion C. Cooper had had replaced him as the, the production chief. And according to Max and, and some other sources, the, the executives in New York were very nervous about Kong because the studio was on the verge of closure. And they looked at it without music and the stop motion animation of Willis O'Brien, which I love, uh, struck them as a little jerky and and they just didn't really get the movie which is is no knock on the film itself it's just that some films psycho included are really terrific they just need the right score to completely pull it all together and uh it was said by max that after the executives in new york saw kong they told him not to spend any more money on a musical score because they had simply spent so much. And indeed, uh, before Kong came out, the studio went into receivership. It was it, it had to declare bankruptcy and stayed there for, for quite a while. Uh, 
And uh, it was Marion C. Cooper, Kong's creator, producer, director, who said, and I will quote Max here, Cooper said to me, Maxie, go ahead and score the picture to the best of your ability and don't worry about the cost because I will pay for the orchestra. Uh, because the paperwork is sort of locked up somewhere on this film, um, I don't know that Cooper had to write the check himself by that time he was running the studio. But I think what is most important here is that he said to Max, don't worry about the money. Don't worry about anything. Just write the best score you can. And that was just like giving a, a, a thoroughbred racehorse the, you know, the, the start to go. And Max uh, had a little bit of time, which helped, too. And from December to probably early January through January, he wrote a score that is a, a really a, a combination of Wagnerian opera in its scope with a lot of uh, Stravinsky and dissonance like the Rite of Spring that we simply didn't hear in movies at that time, along with some of Max's own uh, style of Viennese romance, uh, the theme for Andero played by Fay Ray is this beautiful sort of waltz theme. And what Max does is he, he writes a theme for Kong, these three descending notes that are the very first sounds we hear in the movie, a ba, ba, ba. And it's, it's such a simple theme that it can be forceful and menacing when we first see Kong. It can be sort of reflective when played more quietly. And then by the end of the film, it, that simple theme has evolved into really this elegy for a fallen tragic character and, and is just really beautiful. And if the Kong theme begins uh, as, a, as a terrifying one and becomes a, a tragic and poignant one, Anne's theme is also developed throughout the score in a different way. We hear this beautiful waltz as we have the one love scene in the film between Fay Ray and Bruce Cabot, this, this pretty melody for her that uh, Max called Stolen Love. But when she's abducted and when she's taken to Kong, that same theme changes into this kind of hysterical figure of triplets that sounds like just just screaming and a heart beating. And most viewers will not even recognize that it's the same piece of music, but it really does tie it together. So Max writes numerous themes like that that he develops throughout the score and really brings the film together. He gives it he gives he, he reinforces the sense of scope and scale that Marion C. Cooper wanted for the movie and he gave it a bigness and uh and and I would just encourage anyone to take the scene of Kong first appearing or, or any scene, uh, any of the big fantasy scenes and play it without sound and then turn on the sound. And it makes such a difference. And I should say that that uh, Max worked very closely with a brilliant sound engineer who was really one of the pioneers of sound in the movie, a man named Murray Spivak. And he and Max worked closely to make sure that the sound effects and the music never fought each other. Uh, in the final sequence where, of course, the, the airplanes are coming for Kong and, and ultimately bring him down, Murray Spivak adjusted the pitch of the airplane sounds so that they were not the same as the notes of Steiner's music, so they would both be heard, which is just an extraordinary attention to detail when you think how new sound was in film and the fact that these two men, both of whom would be you know, legends in their field, were working together on, on the perfect film. And when you look at Max's score, Max writes what's happening in the film on the pages because it's just simple music sheet paper with him writing phrases like, "'Twas beauty killed the beast," and you know, Kong reaches for Anne but cannot touch her you know, at the end when he's falling, about to fall in the Empire State Building. And you, you have the sense looking at the paper of, of Kong that, that Max is almost like an audience member watching it and, and, and exclaiming with, with excitement of what's happening on screen. And at the same time, he is absolutely inside Kong as he realizes that he's dying, that, he's, that this is the end. And it's really extraordinary to look at his, uh, at his pages. Uh, it's it's all there, and he'll use different colored pen, pencils to illustrate different musical lines, or where where Anne's theme is versus Kong's theme, and and he's doing this, as I've mentioned, with very little sleep usually, and uh, it's it's just remarkable how much attention he pays to the, uh, to details. And yet, as you, it's one of those things that when we talk about film, which is obviously a visual medium. Those other parts are just as important. Maybe not, obviously, you have to have the visual in order to have a film, at least I would assume so, but the sound, and nowadays it's become the norm more that people focus on that a little bit more sound. You know, the, Even the, the average moviegoer might be more attentive to, to some of those aspects, but 
you could see if 1930, if King Kong was one of the first to consider these things so importantly, you can see why, um, how important it became because obviously over time it became much more normal and, and these things just kept going forward. The sound and music became just a, an Im- imperative part of, of, of film. It did. And, and you used a great phrase in, in, in terms of talking about things becoming more normal. And, and one of the many things that Max did that he does not really get credit for that people don't know is that the same year as, uh, that King Kong was released, 1933, Max began what was ultimately a 27-year battle, uh, which he began in the friendliest way and then getting nowhere uh, became more and more of a, of a battle. Uh, a really a three-decade battle for composers for, for film to receive royalties for their music because ASCAP, the entity that collects royalties for songwriters, did not feel that film scores fell under their purview. And they, they told him that uh, they weren't going to be collecting money for, for any use of, of movie music unless, uh, say, a theme was published as sheet music or if, say, a song was in a film and it came out as a record, that they would do. And as music became more and more recognized as an important element, and certainly when the studios began selling their older films to television in the 1950s, and King Kong was all but inescapable on on television in the late 1950s and and onward, um, Max sort of had the ammunition to say, this isn't right. And he united really all the leading composers in Hollywood into this collective uh, uh, effort to have ASCAP collect royalties when there when when a film is shown in other media, television, and then later home video, and now streaming. So the fact that composers can re- receive money and some of them receive millions of dollars is partly thanks to Max, who really did not give up. And uh, again, there's there's so much correspondence in his papers where you see him, you know. And Max was really a very uh, easy. He was. A nice person, but but when but he also could be very fierce, standing up for what he believed was right, just as much as Bernard Herrmann would. In fact, I found more similarities than differences in many ways between those two men. And uh, I think it's wonderful that that Max really uh, stuck to his guns and and ensured that film music received not only the respect it deserved, but also that people were remunerated remunerated for the work that they did. You talked a little bit earlier on about the kind of sources that you used to to put this book together. I'd like to talk briefly about some of that because <clears throat> many of the people who, you know, a lot of our, our, our interviews are listened to by academics and people who are writers themselves. And I have a particular interest in history myself and as because yes. I teach history and it's, I have a history, you know, historical background. Um, what kind of material did you find that you felt was particularly useful in giving you a real sense of who Max Steiner was? Yes. Well, I, I must say that once Max came to Hollywood, uh, the job of researching was made much easier by the fact that uh, his papers had been saved and his wife's papers had been saved, and also that, that places like UCLA and USC had kept the production records of, of most of the films that he worked on. However, Max didn't come to Hollywood until he was 41, so I really had to do a lot of digging for those first uh, 41 years, and it was a tremendously enjoyable adventure, particularly Vienna. Because uh, Max, as I mentioned, came from, he was the third generation of, of this, this rather legendary family of the late 19th century in Vienna. And yet, this is not a story that had been told, or at least told accurately. So I was very grateful to discover that Vienna has its own theater museum, because uh, very few other major cities do not, even London that had a, a standalone one. That one has been nicely folded into the Victoria and Albert Museum, where I found many papers about uh, Max's London years. But I'd say that for me, the big uh, eureka moment came with the, the research in Austria, because um, there were boxes and boxes that were saved uh, of, of about Gabor's, his father's 
various concert halls, the Vaudeville Theater. He ran Danzer's Orpheum. They had the programs for just about every event. They had reviews of the events. And uh, the, I, I had mentioned that Gabor created this, this enormous amusement park, Venice in Vienna. The Theater Museum in Vienna had hundreds of of papers, programs on that. They even had a ticket for the Reason Rod, the Ferris wheel, uh, from one of it from when it first opened. And I could see why Gabor lost money because even this little ticket that was that you bought to to ride a roller, uh, to ride a Ferris wheel was beautifully printed in multiple colors with the uh, with the, uh, the illustration of the, of the Ferris wheel on it. So Gabor did everything as 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 beautifully as possible. But uh, it was indeed fortunate that that museum survives and that the staff was so helpful. And in fact, it's, we're lucky that those papers were not destroyed in World War II because the current location of the theater museum is just walking distance from the opera house, which was heavily bombed during World War II. So it's kind of a miracle that, that Austria and Vienna still has uh, its records uh, going back. I'm not sure how far, but certainly back to the 1860s, the time I needed to look. So I, I would uh, encourage people to try to find what museum, you know, uh, what what resources still exist. And also, I discovered that there were people in the world who had been uh, just out of for, for their own interest had begun doing this research themselves. There was a gentleman in Scotland and uh, a wonderful someone who's become a good friend, Stephen Butler in, in Britain, who had been doing a lot of this research so they could help point me to some of these archives and tell me the names of of people in the uh, institutions that were still alive. For example, getting school records can be very tricky. I had, uh, I had a little bit of a challenge getting Bernard Herrmann's records out of the DeWitt Clinton High School, which were in, in a dusty box in an attic. And uh, similarly, Max went to a, uh, a very respected musical institution, and it was, I will say, difficult to get a response, but ultimately I got all the paperwork I needed there. So persistence is a good thing, and also finding out who has also begun and done similar searches, because sometimes records are lost, but uh, someone who pursued that particular interest years earlier might have preserved a copy of them, and that was certainly true in this case. So I have to ask the question, even though you may not have a direct answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Which of his scores is your favorite? <laughs> well, there are so many Max Steiner scores that I love, and uh, it's sort of like asking your favorite movie. It sort of depends on the day, but I will say the one I can endlessly listen to with, 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 with just as much pleasure as the first time is the score of King Kong, because one thing that Steiner did better than anyone, I mean, I think he and John Williams are really the masters of this, is writing galvanizing, uh, heartbeat racing music that just can, can stimulate the listener so much that static film would seem like a, a race car <laughs> chase. Uh, Max could write really thrilling music, and, and that's certainly true of Kong. And one, one device he used, as, as other composers before him have, but he did it particularly brilliantly, is he will raise the key and he will modulate uh, the music higher and higher so the music will play a phrase and it'll play it an oct- uh, a few notes up and then a half a tone up. And that sense of going higher and higher is a, it's just like a song that might, in, a, in its last chorus, do a key change up to a higher key and then that's when everyone applauds and they're not even sure why but it's because there's been that jump in the music max had a tremendous sense of how to escalate excitement and tension and kong is is a supreme example of that but something that's less noticed is that the music of uh, in king kong the, the very first real cue in the movie is called a boat in the fog when the boat is going through the fog and, and approaches skull island and it's a beautiful piece for harp and woodwinds. And, and, and it sounds almost, if you didn't know who the composer was and someone just played it, it sounds like Debussy or Ravel, who are two of Max's favorite composers. And indeed, Max, as a, as a child, got to see Debussy conduct in, in Vienna. So he was introduced to this music when it was brand new. So he could write very impressionistic beautiful, mysterious music. And then he could also write this sort of uh, just just mesmerizingly exciting music at the same time. And I think Kong is a great example. That said, he, he many people are fans of his, his Betty Davis scores for films like Now Voyager that are supremely romantic. And Max himself was a great romantic. Uh, he, he was very much uh, of, of Vienna and uh, was, was, he fell in love too easily and uh, too, too often. And 
he, he but that that was also something that fed his his creative voices that he could write so many beautiful love themes and uh, i should mention that max is one of the few people uh we know of who hated the song as time goes by from that we know from casablanca and the reason he didn't like it was because he was told that he had to use it uh as time goes by was actually written for a broadway show in 1931 and it was mentioned in the play that Casablanca is based on. And the film's producer, Hal Wallace, thought it would be perfect for the movie, and he was right. But Max, seeing the film without any music, just really fell in love with Ingrid Bergman and her character, and, and at the same time could be her character. So he just could sort of fall in love with her and yet embody that person. And he certainly could relate to Humphrey Bogart's character of Rick Blaine, because Max's own wife had just left him, and they were separated, and he was begging her to come back. So I think that that part of what informs Casablanca, another great score of his, is is that romantic yearning. And when he was told by Hal Wallace, Max, you cannot write an original love theme as much as you want to for Ingrid Bergman and and Humphrey Bogart. We are using as time goes by. Max uh, really absorbed it and he, he uses it as everything from he turns it into everything from a sort of rhapsodic waltz. To at the end, this kind of heartbreaking Puccini-like farewell in the airport scene. And if you listen to it, you would think that not only did he love as time goes by, but that he had written it himself and not uh, Herman Hupfeld, the, the original songwriter. And Max having a sense of humor, by the time he finished the score, he the very last page of the score ends with a, a joke, a private joke to his orchestrator, Hugo Friedhofer. And he said, thank you very much, Hugo. Yours, Herman Hupfeld. So... He could uh, he could sort of make a joke about it, but I think that the thing that, that he was disappointed that he couldn't write that write that love theme for his, for Casablanca. But to go back to your original question, it is one of his greatest scores. So there you are. It's I've always felt that film music, while there have been people who don't completely think much of it or don't really give it its due, because. I think it's the obvious continuation of the type of of theatrical music we were getting before there was film that uh, many composers, classical composers, spent their careers between opera and other kinds of, and ballet, that they would write scores. And to me, this is just the next step. I mean, you think to yourself, Prokofiev wrote film scores and in, in addition to his classical. So it's just great that, that a composer like... Um, Max Steiner was was able to really introduce the concept that this is that the film music could be just as important as other kinds of music and have that it can stand on its own test of time. Yes, he uh, yes, I'm glad you mentioned that because Max very much saw film music as a continuation of a tradition of great dramatic music and he didn't mind if people didn't notice the music, if the film was successful, because he felt that that it was doing its part. And if, if someone enjoyed the film, he had done his job. Now, of course, he did enjoy it if people noticed his, his themes, like Tara's theme for Gone with the Wind or the now Voyager theme that he later called It Can't Be Wrong. He certainly enjoyed it when people complimented on him on his music. But he, he accepted the fact that music is processed by moviegoers differently than people going to a concert hall. And uh, I would love to have attended some of the lectures he gave in the late 30s and early 40s because he he was he was he hosted some some lectures for people usually held at a Warner Brothers own theater and he would show a sequence of a film that he had scored without the music and then play it with the music. Bernard Herrmann also did this years later, and invariably the, uh, I, I, I found so many letters in, in Max's papers where people said I had no idea how much the music helped the film because without it, we would hear the, you know, we would call it the foley, the bumps and the sounds of, of what's on the set. And there'd be kind of dead pauses between things. And people would constantly note that when the music was added, everything seemed to be just flowing and of a single piece. And uh, that was something that, that Steiner, I think was really outstanding at. He also said that it was very important when to know to stop and start the music and he was grateful. He said anytime there was a door slam or something, so he could subtly bring in a music cue and take it out. And uh, some people watching his films think that uh, on a particular film, there's there's too much music. Max would agree, probably, in some cases, because there were instances I discovered looking at his, his scores 
where he wanted less of his score in the movie. And Jack Warner, his boss at Warner Brothers, so loved music and film and so appreciated what Max did in making the movies better that he would sometimes say after a preview, Max, write more music or, or just during the scoring of it, say, you know, score the whole movie and we'll dial it out where we don't need it, which is certainly not the way Max wanted to approach it. So uh, so sometimes I would find notes in his uh, in his scores to his orchestrator, Hugo Friedhofer, and say, Hugo, I want the music to stop here, but they, capitals, want the music to keep going to here. So he would sometimes write the next music under protest. So it shows that film composers rarely, if ever, have the final say. I would say close to never have the final say on their music. And uh, that was something that he had to accept. And Bernard Herrmann, even someone as iconoclastic uh, as Bernard Herrmann had to accept that uh, it was part of a whole. And uh, you could only hope that you had a sympathetic sound mixer and a producer director who appreciated his score. Well, I'm, it, I, I think modern film goers hopefully will understand the importance of somebody like a Max Steiner or by Max Steiner with what we have now. And those people who like older films or what we will often refer to as the golden age of Hollywood, I hope from reading your book and learning more about not only Max Steiner, but the importance of how film music grew during the period, will learn more and will have a new appreciation for what Steiner did and, and, and his fellow composers during this period. And I think your book does a great job of presenting that both as an overview, but also to see what led to this man being so important when it comes to Hollywood. And I really appreciated the time that you were able to spend. I think you gave me a really great uh, view of an important person in, in the life of both music and Hollywood. Well, thank you, Joel. You asked such good questions about it. And uh, again, I will say I was fortunate that I got to tell a story that hadn't really been told and I think is is a very important one for anyone who loves uh, music and movies. Thank you again for all your time. You bet. My pleasure, Joel. Thank you. My thanks to Stephen. I hope you now have a better understanding about Max Steiner's vital role in the history of film music. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.